Hey, West Village family, welcome to our online gathering. Excited that you can come with us on this journey through God's Word this morning as we continue on in our Lent series, looking at the different facets of Jesus' life and death and kind of the beautiful picture that is the gospel. So if I haven't met you before, my name is Matt. I'm one of the leaders, one of the elders out here at West Village, uh, and excited to get to bring the Word to you today. Uh, and this series that we're going through leading up to Easter, this Lenten series, uh, it's going to have a lot of repetition. Uh, you're going to hear the same good news about Jesus every week, uh, and hopefully that makes your heart overflow with joy. Um, and, and I really like to think of the gospel as a gem, right? Gems have many sides, many facets, and the gospel is like that, right? And we can spend a lot of time just looking at one facet or one side and appreciate the beauty of it. And as we understand each side, it really helps us see the whole even better. And so that's what we're doing uh, in this season. So the big idea, what I get to preach on today, is Jesus as our substitute. Uh, really this idea that when God looks at believers, he sees Jesus. He doesn't see our sin anymore. He sees the perfect life of Jesus. And that is amazing good news. So before we dive in uh, to the text a little bit more, I just want to pray. Yeah, Jesus, thank you that your word is active and alive, uh, that your gospel is still good news today, uh, just like it was 2,000 years ago, and it'll be good news till the end of the ages. Uh, we want to trust in that. We want to let our hearts rejoice in that. Uh, so, Spirit, I ask that you come in, that you make these words alive and active. <clears throat> you soften our hearts where they're hard. You remove the blinders from our eyes where we can't see and appreciate these truths. Amen. I have a tickle in my throat. I'm gonna drink a lot of water. You guys are gonna to have to deal with it, sorry. I won't take a pee break, I promise. <clears throat> so our anchor verse for today, uh, where we're gonna kinda of go back to, and it's really gonna ground uh, the theme for today, is found in 2 Corinthians 5.21. So turn there <clears throat> if you have it, and I'll read it out for us. It said, God made him who had no sin to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. And this verse really sets up both sides of the story today. Uh, we're going to be bouncing all over through different verses, but I want to continue to pop back here and this idea that Jesus becomes sin or he takes on our sin before for us, and we take on Jesus' righteousness, his right choices and his right actions and his perfect life. Uh, and that's really the heart of substitute. We could stop here if you guys got it all, but that's not how sermons work. Uh, we're going to keep going in and really flesh this out. And I want us to ask three questions. And the goal of these questions is to get to the place where this overwhelming truth starts to change our lives. And two definitions to keep in mind. Um, maybe you're new to the church world. It's just always good to have a refresher on definitions. But the word sin, we throw it around all the time. Uh, and in a simple form, it's lots of different meanings. Uh, but it's replacing the truth of God with a lie that leads to wrong actions. So sin, replacing the truth of God with a lie that leads to wrong actions. And the other side of that is righteousness. Uh, um, some people might define that as, I like to say, an easy one, right choices and right actions. Uh, but a little fuller definition would be letting God's truth lead you to right actions. So both of these, the heart of them is belief. Wrong belief leads to wrong actions. Right belief leads to right actions. Sin and righteousness. So let's move on to question one. Why do we even need a substitute? You know, all of us, if we're really introspective, We'll admit that we're not perfect. 
but honestly, we probably don't think we're that bad either. Uh, we go through life thinking that, you know, I still got some time. I can clean up my act. I can really get to the point where I consider myself a good person or at least better than most. And I don't really need any help with that. I don't need someone to come in and show me the way or do anything for me. I'll figure it out. Uh, I'm pretty much a good person. And we see that all throughout our culture. If we look in our own hearts, uh, at least in a lot of the North American church, uh, that's ingrained in us. We think that we're not that broken. We're not that bad. We almost got it together. And as usual, the Bible has a completely different story and puts us in our place. Let's go to Romans. Um, I'm going to read a pretty big chunk out of Romans 1, 18 to 25 that corrects this view that we think that we're good people. So let's read it here. It says, The wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of people who suppress the truth by their wickedness. Since what may be known about God is plain to them because God has made it plain to them. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible quantities, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made, so that people are without excuse. For although they knew God, they neither glorified him as God nor gave thanks to him. But their thinking became futile and their foolish hearts were darkened. Although they claimed to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images made to look like a mortal human being and birds and animals and reptiles. Therefore God gave them over in their sinful desires of their hearts to sexual impurity for the degrading of their bodies with one another. They exchanged the truth about God for a lie, and they worshipped and served created things rather than the Creator who is forever praised. Amen. Um, that could be like three or four sermons at West Village, a lot of stuff in there. Um, but I really want to look at these kind of three key takeaways. We see first in verse 18, the wickedness of people, right? They're described, um, but they suppress the truth by their wickedness. Their wrong actions actually put down the truth that God had placed in their hearts and in front of them. And we still do that today. There's no denying that all the negative and bad fruit, any sort of fear or anxiety, um, that's all based out of us suppressing the truth. Uh, that there's a God. Our whole world uh, has denied and taken away the foundation that the world was made uh, by a good, loving creator. Uh, so that shouldn't be a huge surprise. And then it goes on, because um, some of us may say, well, did they really know about God? Um, God didn't talk to all of them like he did to Adam and Eve or some of the, the big stories we see in the Bible. This is talking about humanity as a whole, so not everybody's had a chance to hear from God. Uh, but it says in verse 19 and 20, it says, clearly seen, being understood from what has been made. Paul and Romans here, the Bible is proclaiming that all of us have had a chance to see and hear from God uh, through his witness and creation. The heavens and the earth proclaim his glory and his goodness and his ingenuity and his wisdom and his creativeness in amazing ways. And we all have the chance to see and experience that every day. So there are no excuses. These people knew that there was a God. They knew that there was something bigger than themselves. And then in verse 25, it really hits the point home. It says, we have exchanged the truth about God for a lie. Uh, and then it talks about how they quickly had exchanged created things for the creator God. They take idols, they take money, they take animals, they take other people, and they put them in this place of worship, the place of God. Uh, they made a created thing that could have been good instead into a, something that was God 
And maybe you hear all this and you think to yourself, well, yeah, but Matt, that was you know, ages ago in primitive times. Uh, we've really kind of evolved since then. And we've moved on. We've grown up. It's 2021. I'm watching this on a computer. I'm not sitting reading tablets in a cave. <laughs> and we're just trying to fool ourselves again, right? We're trying to replace God's truth with a lie. Uh, and Paul pushes this point home even further. He hits it even harder on the head. Let's read. I told you there's going to be a lot of reading the Bible, but it's the best thing to read. So in Romans 3, if we flip over a few pages, um, I have it written on my page. I'm not actually cheating here. It says, 3, 10 to 18, as it is written, this is a bit of a poem, song. It says, there is no one righteous, not even one. There is no one who understands. There is no one who seeks God. There is no one who seeks God. Um, no one looks for him. And says, continues on, all have turned away. They have become together, they've together become worthless. There is no one who does good, not even one. There, I'll read it again. There is no one who does good, not even one. Their throats are open graves, their tongues practice deceit. The poison of vipers is on their lips, their mouths are full of cursing and bitterness, their feet are swift to shed blood. Ruin and misery mark their ways. In the peace, in the way of peace, they do not know. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Man, the human language has lost some of uh, its punch in 2020 and 2021, I would say, compared to the like harsh but convicting picture Paul paints right there of the depravity of humanity. There is no one good, not even one says at the end, there is no fear of God before their eyes. Since sin has entered the world, humans have been corrupt. And this becomes an integral piece of this first question we're asking, why do we need a substitute? Because we are, we're corrupt. And you are not the exception to this. As you sit at home and contemplate this on your couch, or listen to it in your car on a way to work, or at the gym as listen to the podcast, you need to hear that you're not the exception to this. Just like I need a substitute, just like Paul needed a substitute, just like every human in history except Jesus, we need a substitute. We need someone to come and save us because we are not good. Even think of right now. I know when I sit at home and watch the gathering, the temptation is always on me. Oh, I'm just going to pop up my phone and browse away at something Maybe find someone to judge on social media. Or I'm going to do a little bit of retail therapy, pop up Amazon, look at this or that. Um, or, you know, we're distracted from that argument we had this morning with our spouse or our kids. And we, our hearts have been coming hard because we were trying to get our way and not submit to them. And we can't hear these beautiful truths about Jesus as we come together and gather and worship. Um, this is happening right now. And this is just a small group of you who even tune in and watch our gathering online. Think of all the people that can't be bothered uh, to, you know, turn off YouTube from whatever they're watching and turn to our stream or whatever it is, right? Um, human hearts are so broken and corrupt that even in the midst of hearing God's words proclaimed and singing his words, our minds still wander. They're tugged and pulled in different directions because they're so corrupt and they're so broken. And this is why we need a substitute. You know, some of us think that hard work or technology or enough evolution 
we'll eventually get to the point where we'll be good. The work, the work will be done. Humanity will figure it out. We'll get along. There'll be peace, love, joy, happiness. But it's not happening. Don't fool yourself. That is a false gospel. That is not good news because we can't save ourselves. We need someone perfect to save us. We need a perfect substitute that was never tainted by sin. And that's where we move on to our next question. How can Jesus be a substitute? And this is really, question is really made of two pieces. Uh, it's can someone take, can something perfect take away sin? And, and is Jesus perfect? So to answer that first piece, uh, we won't dive too deep, but we need to look back to the Old Testament. And in the Old Testament, we see this picture, a super concise form of it, of God calling a people to himself. These people are the Israelites. Uh, and they're still broken and sinful, just like the rest of humanity. But he wants to give them a way to interact with him, <clears throat> a way to atone or pay for their sin in small ways um, so that he can be a little bit nearer to them. Uh, and the system is very complex. There's whole books of the Bible written on it, and it would be a very dry sermon to do, but it still is in a very important part of the Scripture. Uh, but to simplify it, uh, they kind of use spotless or unblemished animals as perfect as they could get uh, as a substitution or an, a way to pay for their sins. And they were sacrificed uh, on behalf of the people um, so that the sins could be uh, made right, something could pay before God. Uh, and as we know, uh, the system in the long run didn't really work. We're not doing it today for a reason because <laughs> um, ultimately it took care of sin, but it didn't take care of the sin problem. These people were still corrupt. They kept going on sinning, and so sacrifices were endless. It was an endless ritual and pattern and habit annually of how sacrifices were made, how sins were atoned for, because every day we wake up and we start sinning again. So that's really an oversimplification, and we see it as the, the foundation or the foreshadowing of what comes in Jesus. Uh, <clears throat> but it also proves the point that we can't save ourselves, even when God gives this complex uh, system and way to interact with him, he knew that it wasn't the end goal. He knew that Jesus would be the way to take care of this. He knew that sin couldn't be conquered by any action of man because um, they're broken. And, and I was actually struck by this tangent as I thought about that, that even in today in the church, we still have these proclivities, right? Even though we know about Jesus, we still want to put systems, ways to measure holiness and earn holiness. <clears throat> I just wanted to kind of step back from what we're looking at here and just talk to this quickly, right? Because I see this uh, in church people all the time. Um, you know, they're looking for, like, if they're not praying enough, if they're not reading their Bible enough, if they're not attending enough gatherings or being involved in the CG enough, they've put these systems of holiness on themselves and they bear the burden of it. They feel like they're not good enough to come or participate, or they feel some sort of shame um, that they missed out on something, or they didn't do something, uh, or someone in the church has put that on them, a leader, a structure, whatever it is. They've created this false gospel that you need to do these things to be okay in God's eyes. So we need to watch out for this in the church. We can't find ways to measure our holiness. It's not that these activities are bad, but if they become a way that we try and save ourselves, then we fall into the trap of the Israelites. 
And we actually demean the beautiful substitute of Jesus because we say, Jesus, well, I'll only take 90% of that. I can do the other 10% myself. But we can't forget that we can't save ourselves. We are broken. We are not capable of it. We are so corrupt that we can't pull ourselves up by our own bootstrings. So who is able to save us? This should be an easy question for all of you to answer at home if you've been paying attention. It's Jesus. We need that perfect substitute. Someone who's never been tainted by sin. This is why Jesus was born of a virgin, right? Because he comes from God. He's God and man. But we needed that someone who could live a perfect life and credit it to us. Someone that could perfectly overcome sin as the epitome of an unblemished sacrifice. Let's look at what the Bible says about Jesus' perfection. So we've already looked at uh, 2 Corinthians 5 here, 21, where it says, who knew no sin, and that's a very bold proclamation. Sin never entered into Jesus' heart or mind or life. But there's other verses. Uh, if we go to Romans 5, 21, it says, for, though, for just as though, just as through, sorry, the disobedience of one man, that one man being Adam, Many were made sinners, so Adam's action in the garden makes us all sinners. So also through the obedience of the one man, that being Jesus, many will be made righteous. So we get this picture of the disobedience of Adam and the obedience of Jesus, the perfection of Jesus versus the flawed humanity that it came before. Go on uh, into Hebrews 4.15. It says, For we do not have a high priest, that's referring to Jesus, who is unable to empathize with our weaknesses. But we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet he did not sin. He's perfect. And Jesus sent, or God sent Jesus because he knew humans would never get it right. And that the only way God's justice, at his heart, God is just. He needs wrongs to be accounted for. And the wrongs of humanity were so great that only something infinitely perfect could make up for them. And so that's why Jesus is sent, for all, so that all of our wrongdoings could be placed upon this perfect God-man. And then Jesus' life could then be given to us. This perfect life that we are undeserving of can cover us and take away our brokenness. And this is amazing news. This is good news. This is why the gospel means good news. Because we don't have to save ourselves. We have this perfect, amazing substitute. And how do we get it? How do we partake in that amazing transaction with Jesus? That's a crass way to put it. Romans 10, 19, 10, 9 says it super simply. It says, if you declare with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. That's all it takes. Confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead and you will be saved. And some of us find that actually really hard to rejoice in. It's too simple. We feel like we need to earn it or buy it or pay for it. It just seems too easy. There has to be more. There has to be something else that I need to do. Do I at least need to sign up for giving at West Village? Because I can do that. If I got to do like confess, believe, and give a little bit, I'll feel a little better. It's not true. It's not true. Don't believe those lies. You need to let yourself rest here. You need to be, to be okay with not earning it. It's a gift freely given. Jesus has saved you 
the father looks at you and says, this is my son. This is my daughter. And I'm pleased with them. I love them. And he doesn't look at all the crap that you did this morning or this afternoon or last week or last month. He instead sees Jesus, his perfect son, who came to live on earth so he could be tempted and tried and not give in and remain obedient and follow God's will and his ways. So we do nothing and we get everything because Jesus is amazing. And we should probably just stop and we should probably sing a lot of songs right now. Um, But before we get to that good part, I want to ask the question, how do we even respond to this? How do we live in light of this gift? You know, what does it mean to become the righteousness of God? Because this truth should change our lives. And this plays out in many different ways. Uh, this is a call on every single aspect and element of our being and, and how we live. But I really want to highlight three of them. So first of all, we get to live as an adopted child in God's family. Uh, we see in Ephesians, um, we'll read from 4 and 5. It says, For he chose us in him, that's God, he, in him, Jesus, before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. In love, he predestined us for adoption to sonship through Jesus Christ in accordance with his pleasure and will. Another amazing, powerful verse. It's this idea that God chose us predestined us for adoption to his family. And what does it say in the end? With accordance with his pleasure and will. It brings him great joy to invite us into his family so that we can call him father. You know, we have the biggest, smartest, wisest, most loving, amazing dad. We can't even fathom the depths that our heavenly father has gone to and how deep his love is for us. So if we know Jesus, if we have embraced this truth and started taking on this new identity, all our fear and anxiety and worry and anger and burdens, they start to melt away because we have this dad looking out for us. Being part of God's family means that we are eternally looked after and taken care of, that tomorrow's worries can go away because we have a good father who takes care of his children. It's a powerful truth. Powerful truth. A lot of the brokenness and crap in our lives comes from messed up relationships in our families. So when we start let that go and take on this new identity as part of God's family, there's healing and there's health and there's freedom that comes with that. When we say yes to Jesus, we get this relationship. It's beautiful. It's beautiful knowing that we're a dearly loved child. So let that truth sink in. It's one of the implications of accepting the substitute. That's a good one. It's a good one to know that you have a good dad who's going to watch out for you. But you need to let it change you. You can't hold on to the past. So that's the first one. We're adopted. The second is we get to share the good news. So what do you do when something happy comes up in your life? Good meal, funny TV show, whatever it is, new toy that you found, fun vacation you went on. We share it. We want to share our joy with others. Some of that's out of our brokenness. We like to brag. Some of us, we want others to experience it with us because we want them to participate in that joy or be able to taste it in some way or the other. So we share it. We proclaim it. Uh, and 
Jesus is the best news. He is really, really, really good. And hopefully this truth of being adopted into God's family wells up joy and happiness and freedom in you um, that you want to share. You want to take this free gift that brought up such strong feelings and change in you. Um, you want to share these truths that are so profound that they change your whole life with others. Give them a chance to respond to Jesus, just like you had a chance to respond to Jesus. And so at West Village, what does this mean? There's a couple ways that works out. this works out. I broke them into two categories. The first one is personal mission. Um, <clears throat> you have an opportunity within your immediate family or extended family, uh, your coworkers, some of your close friends uh, to do this. Um, so ask the Spirit, pray for ways um, that he can, that Jesus can be made known in that and how he can use you for that, how you can be proactive in that and sharing your faith. You know, that means that you're comfortable talking about some of the stuff that I've talked about today. Being able to articulate how Jesus is the substitute for our sins and we get his righteousness and why that's good news. That's hard. Hard at times. Um, but eventually most people realize that they're broken and they look for something to save them. And so we need to be prepared as God's people to give an answer to that, to share this good news about Jesus. The second kind of main area that mission works out at West Village is communal mission. So we have these community groups uh, and they are all striving to, in some way or another, reorient their, their, their meeting and their group around a mission. It'd be at a neighborhood, um, there's sports teams, there's various single moms, um, all sorts of things um, that God places in front of them for the group to reorient their lives around. So that's one way. And we also have like whole church kind of missional stuff. Like we did meals for moms. We've done some COVID relief stuff, but there's ways to plug in. Hopefully when COVID uh, loosens up again, we can just as a church bless and reach our community in that way and share Jesus with them. <clears throat> so I encourage you in one way or another, you can do any of those, some of those things, either personally with family and friends and coworkers or with your CG, um, but allow this good news to shape those times. Uh, and look for opportunities to gently and lovingly share it with others. The Bible talks about sharing the truth in love. We don't want to be this resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. We want the truth to be shared in, in such a way that it's loving and good, um, not loud and abrasive, which I'm sure many of you can think of examples of Christians standing on street corners and proclaiming this news. Uh, in a lot of ways, it's the same message, but it's really delivered as kind of a clanging gong, um, not this loving message of hope that we're aiming for and that Jesus calls us to. <clears throat> so we can be, how do we live? We live as adopted child children. We share the good news. And finally, we, we get to worship. We get to come to Jesus and worship him in response to this. Give him honor and glory. We proclaim his goodness. And it's amazing. You know, worship, another way to say it is ascribing worth to. We're saying that God is worthy of these things, that he is the most worthy, the most valuable. And that's what worship allows us to do all different times. So a lot of us, we think of worship just as singing. Um, probably did a little singing before this, do a little singing afterwards. Sweet, put in my 15 minutes of worship this week. 
Maybe we listen to music in the car and sing along or at home or whatever it is. And, and singing is a beautiful way to worship. Don't get me wrong. We see lots of amazing songs in the Bible. There's a rich history, history in the church of using song to express our emotion and our feeling and our worship to God. So I don't want to undermine that. And I think we should do it often. We should do it before and after our gatherings. We should do it in the car. We should do it wherever we can. Uh, sing to God uh, a joyful song. <clears throat> but it also means we get to worship with our whole being, our time, our talents, and our treasures. So our money, we worship with our money. We say this every time we talk about giving at West Village. I'm saying that instead of me buying something that I want to worship, I'm going to give this to you, Jesus, and worship you with it. Instead of filling and satisfying myself with it, I'm going to give it to you and your church so they can use it to go share the good news that we're adopted into someone's family. <clears throat> So however you give, um, dropping off checks at the office, online, e-transfer, whatever it is. There's so many ways nowadays. Um, every time you do that or you look at your bank statement, step back. Say, Jesus, this is for you. Thank you for your goodness to me, um, for being my substitute and also blessing me uh, with money. So I'm able to just give to your church, use it for your glory and your good. Make it a worshipful moment. We also set aside our time. Uh, we take time out of our lives to contemplate Jesus through reading his word, through praying. And if we do those with a soft heart, they become moments of worship. As we pray and cry out to God and share ourselves with him and petition him and, and thank him, they become worshipful moments. As we read his word, it can overwhelm and amaze us. The best part of preaching, and I have only started to appreciate this in the past year or so, is I get to just spend time soaking in these truths. Before, it used to be kind of a nervous exercise of, man, I, I need to go and speak in front of somebody. I, I got to think of this and that. I want to make sure I'm clear and concise and all these things. Um, and God, through his mercy and grace, the Spirit's just started to allow these times to be like, yeah, well, I write regularly in my notes, rest here. Rest here. This is a good truth. We need to rest here. Uh, and that's an amazing moment of worship. And that comes out of reading God's word with a soft heart and, and open to what his spirit has to say for us. So we give our money, we give our time, and we give our talents, right? We have talents that we serve others. We serve those who know Jesus and those who don't know Jesus. And we do those um, because we want to proclaim that God is good. I'm giving up my time not for you, for your neighbor, or for your friend. I'm giving up my time because Jesus gave up his whole life for me. And I want to respond to that. We use our creative talents, right? Think of the musicians, they come up uh, and they do amazing creative things or there's artwork. There's so many ways that we can use the creative gifts that God has built into us uh, to proclaim him through worship. So my hope as we conclude is that this amazing truth that Jesus is our substitute will continually draw you back to a place of worship. That as your heart and your mind contemplate this new reality, you are overwhelmed with the amazing gift that Jesus has given you. And if this fails, if you know your heart hasn't been stirred uh, over this past 40 minutes or whatever it's been, um, don't feel shame. Don't feel guilt or burden. But pray. Ask the Spirit to come and soften your heart. Show you where you've replaced the truth of God with a lie, where sin has come in and blinded you. And the Spirit will come. If you're humble, if you're, he'll help make you soft-hearted. He'll help your eyes to see what he has for you 
and rejoice in this amazing truth that you've been adopted into God's family. I'll finish where we started. It says, we get to worship Jesus because God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Let's pray. Jesus, this truth is in some ways simple, but in so many ways it is complex and rich and deep and amazing. You became sin for us. You didn't have to. You wanted to. You wanted to have right relationship with us. So you took on all of our brokenness and our disgustingness and our wickedness. You bore the punishment for that. We want to thank you for that, Lord. We never want to stop being amazed by that. And on the flip side, to make it even more amazing, you gave us your perfect life. You made us righteous by giving us your righteousness. So may we live in light of that, Lord. May we not squander this beautiful gift that's given you. May we be your loving children who share your good news and worship as much as we possibly can. Amen.